Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Prairie Design Lab. This is episode 42, one which we call Collective. Today's episode was recorded on March the 11th, 2022, as part of the 14th annual symposium called Atmosphere. Let's begin with an introduction from Jason Chan. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to our last program of Atmosphere 14, thank you for joining us. Uh, my name is Jason Chan, uh, serving as Mr. Symposium at the Faculty of Architecture, University of Manitoba. As we begin today's special program, we would like to acknowledge that the University of Manitoba campuses are located on original lands of Ashinabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and the peoples, and on the homelands of Métis Nation. We respect the treaties that were made on these territories, we acknowledge the harms and mistakes of the past, and we dedicate ourselves to move forward in partnership with Indigenous communities in the spirit of reconciliation and collaboration. Today, Terry McLeod will moderate the conversation of today's program. Terry, as you many of you know, is an award-winning journalist and uh, the former CBC anchor. I would say he was the voice of Winnipeg. He's also currently the producer and writer of Prairie Design Lab, a podcast of a faculty of architecture focused on design from Prairie and beyond. Now with that, I'll turn it over to Terry. Thanks so much, Jay. And thank you very much to all of our guests today. I can hardly wait to plunge in to what's going to be some pretty stimulating conversation. This, of course, is the final event of Atmosphere 14. Interestingly and coincidentally, two years ago today, the World Health Organization declared in 2020 that COVID-19 was a global pandemic. Its impact will be part of today's conversation about how we are living together again. You know, the word atmosphere itself signifies a concept, a kind of a feeling, a tone that can be hard to grasp and even harder to talk about. Yet the creation of atmosphere, intended or not, is one of the most powerful contributions of designers to the world. Today, we'll hear from three keynote speakers as they tell us about their atmospheric ideas and what we're calling a conversation on living together again. And we'll ask a number of deep questions, including how did living become realigned during the pandemic? How can we live together with land and each other? How densely can we do that? With whom and with what? How long can we or should we sustain our living in a region or context, and at what cost? How can we rethink housing based on what we're experiencing? To address these questions, we're joined by three deep thinkers. I should mention that each of our presenters will be talking about and describing a slideshow that they've created depicting their ideas as part of their original Zoom presentation. We begin with Diana Lind, who joins us from Philadelphia. Diana is an urban policy researcher and the author of the bestseller, Brave New Home, Our Future in Smarter, Simpler, and Happier Housing. She's the housing fellow with the Canadian global nonprofit, New Cities, and has worked at Architectural Record, at the Philadelphia Inquirer, and at the University of Pennsylvania. She joins us today from Philadelphia. Hello there. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for taking the time to join us. With us from Montreal is Megan Marin, a curatorial assistant with the Canadian Centre for Architecture, the CCA. She has a Master of Design Studies from the Harvard Graduate School of Design and a Bachelor of Industrial Design from Carleton University. 
She was a researcher on the book, the brand new book, just out yesterday, A Section of Now, Social Norms and Rituals as Sites for Architectural Intervention. Hello, Megan Marin. Hi, hi everyone. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. Also with us is Johanna Herme, who's with us from Ithaca, New York. She, of course, is from Winnipeg, and she's a co-founder and managing partner of Winnipeg's 5468796 Architecture. She's taught design at the universities of Manitoba, Toronto, Montreal, and was a visiting professor at the College of Architecture at the Illinois Institute of Technology, the IIT in Chicago. And the reason she's in Ithaca today is that she's involved in Cornell University's College of Architecture, Art, and Planning in Ithaca. She's the author of the forthcoming book called Platform Middle, Housing for the 99%. Hello, Johanna Herme. Hello, Terry. Hello, everybody. Nice to be here. We'd like to hear from each of the three of you about your books and your thinking. And Diana, if you could start with that, tell us more about your book, which I've been reading like crazy for the last couple of days. It's a wonderful book. Please tell us more about, first of all, why did you decide to write it? I decided to write the book really as a result of the 2016 U.S. election, um, in part trying to figure out the sort of source of a lot of American troubles um, in the U.S. I really sort of came to a, a housing theory of everything, that so many of our challenges, whether they were social, economic, or environmental, came back to um, the way that we had built our cities and regions. And so um, I'm a firm believer that by rethinking our housing, we could rethink our society. And, and that's what I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about. And that's what the book in some ways is about. Okay, let us have it. Again, thanks for having me. Um, I'm the author of a book called Brave New Home. And the book is really intended to be a history of single family housing, particularly in the US, but it looks a bit um, as well to other countries, a history of that housing, um, and then alternatives to it in present day and potentially into the future. This slide here is an aerial view of single family homes in the US. And you can see why this housing type is so um, compelling for a lot of people. There's privacy for everyone. There is individualism for everyone. There's opportunity to have your own space, your own pool, your own garage, your own house. This is you know, often called the American dream. Um, and people have always sort of thought this is the way that we have always lived as a country um, in the US or um, as people in general. But really, uh, it's actually a, a very new phenomenon, and it's actually quite unique among uh, the ways that people live around the world. And I think one of the other reasons why I wrote the book is that for so long, we've really sort of assumed that single family homes um, in the U.S. are, and, and the home ownership model that goes along with it, are sort of these unalloyed goods. And there's been very little conversation about its potential downsides and the ways in which you can look at all of the so-called benefits of single-family homes and the ways in which they have, you know, especially now in the 21st century, dark sides, if you will, to them. Um, the way that that sort of privacy and individualism um, can in turn lead to loneliness or the ways in which, you know, having that garage has its dark side of its environmental impact of everyone driving their own cars. And so this book was really intended to sort of say, hey, this isn't the way that 
we have always lived in the U.S. Um, in fact, we were a country of boarding houses, a much more diverse set of housing types like apartment hotels and other kinds of cooperative living. And then, in fact, these were ways that most people lived in cities in the 1800s. Somewhere between a third and two thirds of people either had been a, a boarder in a boarding house or had hosted boarders. And these were ways in which people both had tremendous economic and social mobility. Um, it was also a way in which people connected with their communities, that people found other sources of income, that people were able to live affordably. And so I also wanted to explore what new ways could we address some of the things that are challenges in the US. So if you go to the next slide. What are some of those challenges that we're talking about? I think the first one, when you think about, you know, the challenges of housing these days is really around the cost of housing. And I think so many people are trying to figure out how are people going to be able to afford to be homeowners? How are people going to be able to afford to even just live in adequate and decent housing? Um, and I think getting back to, you know, sort of the genesis of the book, one of the things that I really felt is that, you know, many cities have proven their unwillingness to actually build the housing that they need. And so we actually really need to think beyond just sort of these old ideas around finding new sources of funds for housing and uh, thinking about how we're going to, you know, build new apartment buildings or new housing complexes. In fact, if we rethink the traditional single family home type, could that in some ways open up new ways of housing people and housing them more affordably? If you go to the next slide. We're at a time where homeownership, um, it had really risen to nearly 70% Pre the Great Recession, it went down quite a bit to nearly, you know, 60 percent uh, around 2016. The pandemic raised it quite a bit. And then now we're kind of drifting back downwards. And I think also as we start to think about how homeownership is increasingly out of reach for so many people, how does that help us kind of open up new ideas around how people should be living? Next slide. One of the big issues in the US and really around the world is how are we going to build integrated communities around the country? And one of the big challenges I really feel is connected to the single family home, both in terms of the way it can segregate communities, but also the ways in which it has a tendency to keep our communities less diverse. When you have more diverse housing options, if you have some small houses, some multifamily buildings, some duplexes, um, you tend to get a more diverse population because there's just different types of housing. You have single family homes, you tend to end up with many more similar types of people who are living in those homes. So could rethinking single family housing also help us rethink how to address segregation? Uh, next slide. I think this is the last on sort of the challenges side of things here. Many developed countries are also are, are dealing with an epidemic of loneliness, of mental health crises, so much so that um, in the UK, there's even, you know, a ministry of loneliness trying to think about how to help people cope with their sort of isolation. That sort of flip side to the beauty of having, you know, your privacy and your separate space is that for many people, this can be a very lonely situation, especially for older people, but not just for them. Also, you know, young people are registering the highest rates of loneliness of any demographic. Could living other ways open up opportunities to address loneliness. Next slide. 
you know, after I look at the history of single family housing and the problems with it, I try to look at what are some solutions here today. And the first area that I look at is co-living. This was really a type of housing that had taken off quite a bit during the pre-pandemic period. And you can imagine also really suffered some setbacks during the pandemic as well. But I think we'll continue to be a major force in the coming decades. And that is this idea of, you know, in the past, people had thought about shared housing, that the, you know, having to share spaces um, with people was sort of the the downside of living. But instead, now there's an increased interest in more intentional communities where the sharing is the goal of these spaces. That's the goal of these housing choices. And so co-living has become popular not only with young people who are trying to find ways of kind of connecting with people and finding a community in cities, but it's also become a, you know, I talked about this even pre-pandemic, very popular with people who are living a more digital nomad lifestyle, which I can imagine in the coming years is going to become even more and more popular. It's very much a housing type that is set for our times and that you don't need to own furniture. You don't even need to have a long-term lease. It's sort of plug and play, um, low friction, a way to connect with people and a way to live in an environment where there's going to be amenities and activities that are intended to bring people together. Next slide. It's also gotten a lot of pushback from people who say, well, co-living is really all about the wealthier people who can afford a sort of bougie lifestyle. But other cities are actually thinking about how could we use co-living? This was an example of uh, for service workers in New York City, they've looked at co-living as a way of housing formerly homeless people. But thinking about where are there instances where there's a common community that you could potentially bring together around shared amenities and services and bring down the price of um, the housing costs as a result. Next slide. The next area that I look at in the book is around accessory dwelling units, which is, I think, the sort of smartest way to tweak some of the problems around single family homes, um, which is, you know, building a backyard cottage, a basement apartment, a sometimes called, you know, the granny apartment, the au pair suite, whatever it might end up being. Um, But a lot of places around in the U.S. and I know also it's very popular in um, certain cities in Canada have really kind of supported accessory dwelling units for a number of different reasons. Um, It can be a way to add that housing diversity in neighborhoods. So it can be a way to have in a neighborhood where there's 2,000 square foot houses, a 400 square foot, um, much more affordable rental option for people. But it could also be another way for people to think about, you know, how to tap into the equity that they have in their home. It could also be a way for people to think about how to live more multi-generationally. And I'll get into that in future slides um, if you go on to the next one. One of the other things I think that's really cool about accessory dwelling units is it fits really well with technology. This is a photo from a couple of years ago from an old South by Southwest. And I've heard, um, once again, this company Icon that's based in Austin has presented another 3D printed house for this year's South by Southwest. 
But, you know, you could imagine accessory dwelling units being very easily 3D printed or using prefab options as a very affordable way to, to add some housing. And it also adds density to neighborhoods that might otherwise need that density to have, you know, a viable commercial corridor transportation options and get those density levels up. Um, it's also a way to add more affordable housing without having to have, you know, a big affordable housing project. Um, it can fit into the neighborhood character of um, a single family neighborhood. Next slide. Then I get into some, what are some trends in housing? And these also address reasons why we might be living more collectively. And one of which is around multi-generational households, um, which is just increasing across the board for a number of different reasons listed here in the slide. But, you know, there's very little reason to think that we're going to see a decline in this, especially as housing prices continue to be really high and people start to come back to multi-generational housing. You go to the next slide. It's a way in which Americans used to live and which many people across the world currently live. And it's something that fell out of favor for one reason or another, but has become much more popular as demographics have started to change. But very little of our housing is really intended to live multi-generationally. It's often um, architectural challenges, I'm sure others will, will point to. Um, but I think that's another big trend. Next slide. Uh, last trend is around um, health and housing, which I think um, especially we all felt during the pandemic that, you know, sort of the social isolation of not having a community that we could easily connect with where there's neighbors checking up on you, where you have a walkable neighborhood that you could access really easily, where your health is sort of the forefront of the design of your neighborhood. I think that, you know, these were some lessons that are going to be taken forward and had already been in motion prior to the pandemic. So this is a photograph from a community in Georgia called Serenby where it's all about having front porches, walkable retail, and a community that is taking some of those lessons of co-living around, you know, building intentional community in those spaces and thinking about it in this much more holistic, physical, social, and mental way uh, of promoting people's health. I got about one more slide. Um, so I finish off in the book, just really kind of talking about how a lot of this comes back to the sort of financial incentives around home ownership that like we're never going to kind of move on from the old single family home until we can start thinking about new ways of building equity for people and communities. Um, and so this is a slide about community land trusts. It's not the only option, but as a final jumping off point, we have to start thinking about ways of building wealth beyond um, investing in our homes because that's a, a real reason why um, so many people are heavily invested in their housing and in preserving the single family home option. So I'll leave that there um, and uh, and excited for the conversation later. Very excited about the prospect of that conversation, Diana. Thanks so much for joining us and thanks for doing a concise presentation of a really complex but delightful book. Let's now turn to Montreal to Megan Marin. She's a curatorial assistant with the Canadian Centre for Architecture. She was a researcher on the just-released book, A Section of Now, Social Norms and Rituals as Sites for Architectural Intervention. And Megan is with us from Montreal. Hello there. Hi. So what are you getting at in your book, which what was just released yesterday, if I have it right? 
And I feel like it's important to sort of point out right off the bat that I'm presenting a section of now on behalf of a relatively large project team. Many people contribute to the, to the research that eventually resulted in the exhibition at the Canadian Centre for Architecture and its accompanying publication. At the end of the day, I think that we went forth with this project actually started quite some time ago now and was postponed as a result of the pandemic. But sort of looking at the fact that the built spaces in which we reside are sort of out of sync with how we live and work today and looking at ways to rectify that or sort of bridge that divide. And I think that we're in a pretty unique position as a research institution, like around the world, there aren't that many institutions like the CCA that are dedicated to architecture and urbanism. Um, so we really have the resources to invest our time in researching this topic, you know, it's our mission. And um, I think that through this project, we have intended to prompt new architectural thinking and hope that it will inspire other practitioners and, and of course, students. Could you tell us more about the meaning of the title of the book, a section of now, social norms and rituals as sites for architectural intervention? So maybe we can break that down with the full colon in the middle of this title. Um, but I think with a section of now, um, of course, we're sort of appropriating the language of architecture and sort of trying to take a cross section of the contemporary moment. And then in terms of looking at social norms and rituals as sites for architectural intervention, it's just sort of taking stock of how we live today, how we work today, how we relate with others, how spaces define, but actually also limit our social relations and looking at what architects can do to respond to the current moment. We actually began working on the, the research for the exhibition quite some time ago, pre-pandemic. Things were inevitably postponed um, during that time period. But all that to say that it means that the exhibition is currently up right now. So if any of you do find yourself in Montreal, uh, between now and the 1st of May, you'll be able to see this exhibition at the CCA. And so I just want to point out that we were presenting not only architectural projects, but all kinds of material that's reflective of the contemporary moment. So we had a lot of contemporary photography series that say document the family or document workplaces. Also a lot of sort of like speculative and, and real product designs as well. Just to sort of give a glimpse in how we're living and working today. Uh, next slide. Just to give me a chance to say a few words about the, the contents of the book. So of course, it's including many of the architectural projects, photographs, products, and everything that were on display in the exhibition. But we also, of course, commissioned some thematic essays on the sort of key topics of the show, of which housing was really only one. And in fact, we actually sort of uh, separated that out as topics of family and property. So sort of what I'll try to discuss today is really at the intersection of those two things. Next slide. So actually to launch into the topic of housing specifically, I thought a good way to sort of enter into this was to use one of the texts from the book, which was written by Helen Hester. It's a really wonderful text in which she brings up the, the topic of domestic realism. So just a quick quote from her book saying, domestic realism names the phenomenon whereby the isolated dwelling and the concomitant privatization of household labor becomes so accepted and commonplace that it's almost impossible to imagine life being organized through any other form. So Terry, actually going back to your original question, I think a phrase like this really sort of pinpoints actually the motivation for this project is to sort of say that all of the systems and sort of that have led to the solidification of the single family home as such a dominant type to sort of like look at those and see what alternatives we can come up with. So next slide, just to sort of break the ideas up a little bit, sort of from a sociological perspective. Our research was, you know, similar to what Diana is presenting, pointing to the fact that the single family home makes less and less sense today. Cities are building more and more of them. Why? What, what can we do about this? 
The nuclear family certainly hasn't disappeared, but we need to accept that it's just one of many different household types. And even still, as many people working in residential architecture will understand that the size of a nuclear family has always been subject to fluctuation over time. So also to design for that. Next slide. And then there's sort of the economic side, which Diana, you were pointing to as well, that the single family home is less viable than ever from an economic perspective, but also unattainable to many of those that actually suits from a spatial perspective. <laughs> I wanna point that out as well, that there's some people that this still suits, it's still desirable for them and it's not something that they can actually financially achieve. And just sort of pointing to sort of the, this, this line on the slide about communal and transient living arrangements, certainly there are many people that are still living communally by choice, as part of a sort of alternative lifestyle, but more and more people are doing this out of necessity. And we really need to ask ourselves whether the spaces in which they're sort of resigned to doing this in actually makes sense. Uh, next slide. One of the key questions that we came back to again and again, as we worked through this research and compiled everything into the exhibition and the publication is how can architecture accommodate influence and in some cases even preempt the conditions in which we find ourselves living today. So I just wanna share a couple of projects that will hopefully inform our discussion. These are just things that we actually presented in the exhibition through models and architectural drawings, sometimes short videos. Uh, so I wanted to point to Constellation House by Berlin-based Something Fantastic. It proposes a fundamental reorganization of space within a typical building group. So this is a German cooperative housing model that some of you might already be familiar with. And domestic space is organized not by individual apartments. That's sort of completely done away with. The whole building is organized by day and night floors and day and night rooms. And so the whole point of this is that domestic space can be reallocated amongst tenants according to how their needs shift over time. So say, for example, if someone's child has grown and moves away, somebody else has a young child that they can actually sort of reassign the room to another household in their building. Um, next slide. I think Kitchen Hoods is a really interesting example of how policy shift, how rethinking housing can actually rethink labor and how it's compensated. So Kitchen Hoods is Anna Puigenaire's research on community kitchens around the globe. And the sort of images that you see here, it's an example drawn from her documentation in Mexico City, uh, where the government created a program following the 2008 financial crisis that allows individuals to prepare and serve affordable meals for their community while earning wages for domestic labor that would really otherwise be uncompensated. Next slide. Architecture of Appropriation. This might actually be familiar to some of you because it was actually an exhibition and publication in its own right a couple of years ago um, at the New Institute in the Netherlands. So here we see a project in which the research and development team of that institution worked with local communities to envision squatting as a spatial practice. The example that I've shown here was a building called Vluchtmaat. And it was an informal occupation and repurposing of an empty office building in the Netherlands by a refugee and migrant collective. And this one was actually legalized shortly after the arrival of these residents in 2015. This of course is a situation that is incredibly rare for squatters to, to find their sort of occupation of a building formalized in any sense of the word with the building owner. But this was still something that was temporary. And I think this research really points in a direction that could use uh, more attention from architects and designers next slide. To also visit the topic of the community land trust, um, there's the project Promised Land by Dogma and New Academy. It was a research project of theirs to put forth a set of proposals or like alternative frameworks to the commodification of housing. So one of these was they were working with a community land trust association in Brussels to map out sort of the financial structures on which the communities are based. So 
Here we see a situation in which the trust owns and manages the land, but cooperatives and individuals own the dwellings upon the land. And in both cases, their resale value is regulated in order to maintain affordability for the, the communities living there. Just lastly, I'll quickly go through Care House Baltimore, a really fascinating project in rethinking family, community, and care work. So this is a housing project in which older and disabled adults live in the same building as their caregivers, such that quality of life can be improved for both parties. So they take on a model of congregate care that decreases costs. Assisted living is often prohibitively expensive for those in need. Care workers are often very undercompensated for their work. So basically by pooling resources, um, it creates a better living situation for everyone. And I just want to point out one visual on this slide. This is a project that's actually currently in development and is slated to open in a first iteration in Baltimore in 2023. But the architect Rafi Segal has looked at how you could implement this at different scales. So on the right hand side there, you see that you can sort of imagine it as being a type of living unit in an existing tower or an existing city block. And then the only other thing that I wanted to mention while I still have a minute here is to point you to two other projects that we've been working on at the CCA that really relate to today's discussion. So one is titled Workplace. It's a collaboration between the CCA and EFLUX Architecture, looking at the spatial implications of labor through several commission texts. And a couple of them really are at the intersection of housing and labor. So I point you toward those. And then Ownership is a forthcoming project by my colleague, Irene Chin, that will delve into a lot of ownership issues at the intersection of architecture on the platform arena. Megan, thank you very much for your time today. Absolutely. Grateful for that. See you again soon, I hope. We just heard from Megan Marin and before her, Diana Lind. Both were part of Atmosphere 14 at the University of Manitoba. Next time in episode 43 of Prairie Design Lab, we'll hear the Atmosphere 14 presentation from Johanna Herme of Winnipeg's 5468796 architecture, and we'll hear a joint conversation from all three guests as they tackle some of the thorniest challenges facing architecture and housing. I'm Terry McLeod. You can find Prairie Design Lab on UMFM Radio, 101.5 FM, Wednesdays at 11.30 a.m. And you can listen to us anytime on Apple and Google Podcasts, on SoundCloud and on Spotify, and on our website, prairiedesignlab.com. See you next time.